Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So when you're diagnosed with a chronic illness, you're suddenly asked to change a lot of your daily behaviors and it can be super overwhelming. And today I'm talking to Kristen Brogan, who is a board certified behavior analyst who also has a unique perspective because she's lived for two years with rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's disease. So she is going to share how she has applied the principles of behavior analysis to her own experience as a patient. And she's also going to explore things like mindfulness and acceptance and so I cannot wait to share this with you. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So I'm so happy to have you here, Kristen. Can you tell us a little bit of just the basics about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. Um, my name is Kristen and I am 33 years old. My diagnoses are rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's. And I have been living with both of those for about two years now. April 2018 is when I was diagnosed. Um, in terms of what I do, um, I'm currently 
a doctoral candidate. So I am pursuing the PhD. I'm really crossing my fingers that it happens within the next year. The pandemic has definitely put some uh, wrenches into that plan, but you know, Mm. PhDs never go as we plan them. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, But the PhD will be in cognitive and behavioral sciences. And then I have a master's in applied behavior analysis and am a board certified behavior analyst. And currently um, during kind of my day job, I guess, if you will, I use um, the tools of applied behavior analysis and work with adolescents who have been incarcerated. So we just kind of work with them on various problematic behaviors that are not kind of in line with the way that they want to live their lives and what they see their futures as. And so that's amazing work. And I absolutely love doing it. Working with adolescent males is is quite fun. <laughs> they definitely keep me on my toes. And then I live in Alabama. Um, I moved here for graduate school. I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I lived there for 27 years. And I came here to Alabama for graduate school and I've been here for about five years now. Wow. When you got diagnosed, it was fairly quick. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I think he was, I want to say he started having symptoms in his 40s. Um, And I think he was diagnosed not till a lot later. Mm. Um, I think it took him several years to get diagnosed. Um, So, but because he had rheumatoid arthritis and then my mom has Sjogren's, she took Mm -hmm. almost 30 years to get her diagnosis, which is awful. But um, so she has Sjogren's and fibromyalgia. And so when I started experiencing pain that was just so severe, I was in tears and couldn't move my shoulder. It was in my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to the doctor and they, you know, took x-rays, everything looked fine. So they were like, here's some anti-inflammatories, go home, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I was for about a week and then the pain came back, but this time in my left shoulder. So I was like, well, this is curious. Um, And so I talked to my mom and my dad and I was like, it's probably rheumatoid arthritis and some of this, you know, there is that hereditary component. So I went ahead and went back to my doctor and let them know. And so they just ran like the full gamut of blood tests and labs and then referred me to a rheumatologist. And then on my first visit, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's and given methotrexate to start like two days after I was diagnosed. So that it was very quick. And I'm very lucky for that because I don't have any permanent joint damage. Wow. You don't even realize until you start meeting other patients sometimes how it is fortunate to have a quick diagnosis, but the family history certainly works in your favor. So unfortunately, your parents both had delays for their diagnoses, but the fact that they had it made it easier for you to get diagnosed. And so I'm just really fascinated by behavior analysis applied to people with chronic illness because my my previous work was all with children with developmental disabilities and it's pretty broadly known in that context and when I found your account I was so fascinated to see that you are applying applied behavior analysis to chronic illness. So can you explain a little bit what a BCBA is and the ABA? Yes, I would love to. So a BCBA is a board certified behavior analyst. And that is a clinician who practices applied behavior analysis or ABA. So in order to qualify to become a BCBA, you have to have a master's degree in a related field. So either in behavior analysis, psychology, or special education sometimes. So it just kind of depends, uh, but it's got to be related to applied behavior analysis. And then on top of that, you have to have 1500 hours of supervised experience. 
So that's actually you in a room with a client applying the tools of applied behavior analysis or being behind the scenes and designing programming and using our science to help change behavior in a socially valid way. So a way that is meaningful to the clients that we're serving. And I'm glad that you brought up, you know, our work with individuals with developmental disabilities because ABA has been really crucial to a lot of individuals who fall within that group. And while we have been very effective with certain behaviors that have been problematic to individuals who have developmental disabilities, it's a science of behavior. So applied behavior analysis was actually developed in a lab with animals and just looking at how organisms learn, how organisms unlearn, and how we can change behavior. And so the science can actually be applied to a variety of different individuals. It's not diagnosis specific. There's not really a cap on like who we can work with. As long as the client behaves, we can work with that client. And so when it comes to chronic illness, you know, chronic illness can be overwhelming for a variety of reasons. I know one of the reasons why I was very overwhelmed in the beginning was because here was this diagnosis and here was this doctor telling me all of these things that I needed to do to change my behavior and change my life. My life was flipped upside down. I had to start taking medications. I had to start thinking about my diet, about exercise in a different way than I did previously. And then on top of all of that, there's all of the thoughts and the mental health side that we're dealing with constantly. And so the science of behavior can be applied to any one of those areas. Some of the things that we can help with in terms of applied behavior analysis with chronic illness is those lifestyle changes. So Mm -hmm. if you're having a hard time with like medication adherence, or you are wanting to start an exercise regimen, or you know, food tracking, but you're not sure where to start. Any one of those things, a behavior analyst, what that person will do, we are trained in the science of behavior. And so we use the methods of science to help you reach your goals in a way that's comfortable for you in a way that works for your lifestyle. Because behavior change only goes so far as somebody is capable of using those tools in a way that it works with their lifestyle, right? We're asked to change so much. And then if I get this bombardment of behavior change on top of everything else, I'm not going to do that for very long. And so a behavior analyst knows how to work with you in a way that's going to work for you long-term. That's so crucial. And I think for me as an occupational therapist, it makes sense to be able to apply this to, like you said, multiple populations. And I did want, I want to get something really quick out of the way because the majority of the audience is going to be patients with arthritis that are listening to this, but I also have quite a few occupational therapists. And there's been a lot of controversy in the field of ABA in terms of ethical treatment of people with autism and other neurodiverse populations. I'll tell you when I first saw your account, I was like, this is weird because I had a bad impression previously of ABA because I thought this is the people that come in and don't respect my client. To be honest, this is from my own observation that they just treat our clients with autism as if they're just a set of behaviors rather than a human with a heart and like a desire behind those behaviors. But then one of my best friends who's a special ed teacher became a BCBA and she showed me that no, it's that that was an outdated. I was volunteering with kids with special needs since I was in sixth grade. So I had years and years of seeing different things. And so it turned turns out that ABA and BCBAs have evolved a lot over the years to address things more ethically. For anyone who might have a bad impression of ABA or BCBA, what would you say? Well, the first thing that I would say is that I'm sorry that you had that negative experience because it's absolutely not acceptable and that's not the uh, the science 
science that I know and the science mm -hmm. that I subscribe to. The second thing I would say is that a lot of it boils down to like clinical philosophy. And so it's kind of similar to, you know, finding the right therapist or the right doctor, the right rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to people who, you know, have had rheumatologists who they feel like have really not respected them and not listened mm -hmm. to them and kind of steamrolled through the entire appointment. Um, so you know, again, it's not acceptable that there are board certified behavior analysts out there who are not respecting their clients. That being said, there are some of us out there who feel very strongly that we are working with whole people. Mm -hmm. And to ignore the whole person, to ignore the presence of emotions, my goodness, one of the things that makes us humans, we need to be talking about this. And I will add, one of our founding fathers of behavior analysis, if you will, B.F. Skinner never and never told us to ignore emotions. He never, ever told us to ignore internal stimuli that you can't necessarily quantify. So that is a misinterpretation of our science and our foundation by some practitioners. And so there are definitely some practitioners out there who probably disagree with me and my statement of that. But again, the, the writing is, is in a book by B.F. Skinner, and it actually says that my toothache is as real as my typewriter. And there's no reason why a science cannot work on something just because somebody else can't verify that it's there. So we need to be creative as behavior analysts and we need to accept the fact that we work with a human population and we are only there to help our clients reach goals that are meaningful to them. It's not my job as a behavior analyst to come in here and tell you what you need to work on or tell you how you should be living your life. This is your life and it is not my job to tell you how to live your life. So my job is to just support you on your journey and to help you harness the power of behavioral science so that you can reach those goals in a way that's comfortable for you and in a way that's going to be long lasting. That's so beautiful. In terms of populations that are neurotypical, that are presenting with more quote unquote, you know, acceptable behaviors, like I have rheumatoid arthritis and I've been told that diet and exercise help and I'm having a hard time like any other human being, right? How many people who want to maintain their health and promote their health and lifestyle know diet and exercise is a part of that? We know that. That's not the problem. The problem is making yourself do the behavior. Yeah. So it's just beautiful that there's a science out there that is evidence-based that says, look, we can help you make a behavior change. Sorry, I'm getting excited for you. <laughs> but I think it would really help our audience to see some examples from your life because you've been sharing examples of how you analyze your own life and behaviors as a patient and a behavior analyst. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to chat about that. So I think the the most concrete example that I can share is an example where I started taking CBD tincture. And so I kind of did a treatment evaluation on several behaviors or dependent variables, if you will, the scientist in me is like itching to use that word. Um, so, you know, measuring a couple of things that were going on inside of my body that I didn't know how to explain. And my rheumatologist actually didn't know how to didn't know how to explain either. And so she's actually the one who originally asked me to start taking data on these things. So those things were my brain fog, my fatigue, and then I was having chest pain. So she wasn't sure if they were medication side effects or really what was going on. And so she said, go ahead and take some data. So then I was like, ooh, you're telling a behavior analyst to take some data. All right, you're going to get yes. some data. So mm -hmm. I broke that down and kind of defined what did that mean to me? What does my fatigue look like? What does my brain fog look like? How is it unique to me and what I 
experience. And so I quantified that and kind of identified some behavioral dependent variables that I could take data on. And I, I did so in a way that worked for me. So the data collection piece was very quick because I knew I was going to have to do it every single day. So I created very quick kind of data sheets that I could run through at the end of my day to make sure that I didn't have any missing data. And then I got excited and I started taking CBD tincture. So I just marked where I started taking that CBD tincture so that I could evaluate how my behavior looked with the CBD tincture and without the CBD tincture. Mm -hmm. And so after I had about two and a half, almost three months of data, I was able to calculate conditional probabilities. And what that is, is it basically tells us, you know, what is the probability of this behavior occurring given a certain event? So for me, it was what is the probability of me experiencing brain fog when I have taken CBD versus what is the probability of me experiencing brain fog overall. And so what you do is you look at those two measures and you evaluate whether or not your conditional probability is higher or lower than what is called your background probability. And so for me, what I saw was that my conditional probability of brain fog and fatigue symptoms were lower when I was taking CBD tincture. And then there wasn't really an effect on the chest pain. So that was able to tell me that for me, CBD was actually worth the cost because that is kind of an expensive supplement. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really thrilled to kind of add this to my regimen. But I, I had the data to support it. And so I am taking it now. And so I just had a rheumatology appointment on Monday. I took all my graphs. I had nine different graphs and I was showing them to my rheumatologist and she was really interested. And she was actually surprised too that I found what I found. But that's the, that's the joy and the, the wonders of data is that it takes out all the guesswork. I don't yes. know about the listeners, but I second guess myself constantly in relation <laughs> to my chronic illness. Like, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. Or maybe, you know, other people, oh my gosh, it's so difficult. And so that's why I really love data for me because it's like, no, Kristen, like, look, this is real. This is what you are experiencing. You can kind of let that second guessing rest because you have this data to support what is going on in your body. So it gives me some confidence and really empowers me as well. I was just editing a different interview and we talked a lot about the feeling of overwhelm when you first get diagnosed and a little bit of a feeling of, um, your self-efficacy takes a hit because I think people, I'll give myself as an example, you know, I was an athlete. I was, you know, played on the most selective soccer teams my whole life and then went to college and was the captain of a soccer team. And then I, you know, experienced this deterioration that it was the first time that it felt like my health wasn't in my control. And I know that's a privilege, right? To have grown for 19, 20 years in a body that I was able to feel control of. Some people don't even get that when they're born. I had this sense of, wait, I'm doing the right things. I'm exercising, I'm eating well, and suddenly I'm in all this pain. And so to be able to give back some self-efficacy to the patient to say that, yes, you have something going on in your body that is out of your control to some degree, like, again, where we draw that exact line is kind of hard to metaphorically say, but like my immune system is, you know, attacking my joints and I can do certain things that can help can either control those symptoms or the disease activity. That's like a wonderful tool to give to a patient who feels so hopeless. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I love about applied behavior analysis in general is that it, it is a tool for me, right? It's not the end all be all. Um, it's, it's a tool and it's very, very helpful across a variety of kind of situations I find myself in. But you're right. That sense of control is something that so many of 
us struggle with just like this loss of control of our body of our health of sometimes even our lifestyle we feel like our lives are out of control and so having that little sense of control back and putting you know kind of some of that control on the patient and you know I have the power to kind of make these decisions and to make these changes in my life in a way that's going to be effective for my overall health management. Absolutely. And I've seen so often in either the groups I've run or the social media interactions I've had that people feel they've tried something and that specific thing and that specific context didn't give them the result they want. And they overgeneralize a conclusion from that to say nothing worked. I tried one diet and therefore no diet or no exercise or not. I feel for people who that's, that's their subjective reality, that feeling of nothing works. But I wonder whether behavior analysis could kind of help people develop that nuanced view. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So not only could behavior analysis help with the way that you, your relationship with your diagnosis and your relationship with if, okay, I need to try all these different things, you know, this didn't work, this didn't work, okay, I'm giving up, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we actually have principles to define these kinds of behaviors. So like when I am met with, I'm hitting a wall, so I'm trying all these different things, I'm hitting a wall, hitting a wall, hitting a wall, that's called learned helplessness and behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. So nothing I do works, why would I even try? And so we just give up. So to develop that resilience, we, again, have a lot of principles in behavior analysis that help with developing that resilience. And so some of that is just going to be things like, first off, accepting that this is a journey, right? Like this is not something that we are on for a limited amount of time. And so just accepting that and, you know, learning to rest along the way, like that is so, so crucial. I am the biggest proponent of rest. I could not be doing half of what I was doing Mm -hmm. if I didn't have regular, very directed and intentional rest throughout my day and throughout my weeks. Yes. It seems as so many people I've encountered in the chronic illness world are people who are used to being able to be really productive, being able to be really active, kind of overachiever, maybe a little bit of a perfectionistic streak. And so learning how to rest and without guilt, for me personally, the, the diagnosis helped me be able to rest without guilt because I was able to say, well, I have an excuse for needing mm-hmm. more rest. Mm-hmm. But when it's happened so quickly, when you've gone from, again, a, a level of functioning that is so high and your whole life is oriented around that level. And then all of a sudden it gets flipped upside down. It can be really, really hard to, to learn how important that is. Yeah, that is a topic that's so near and dear to my heart because yeah. I was diagnosed with uh, my chronic illnesses nine months into my PhD. So I had <gasps> obtained my master's, oh. but yeah, I was fresh into my PhD journey and I was very used to being an overproductive person and mm-hmm. just constantly producing. And it was all about this product based, you know, work. And I, I was very much that type of person and like mm-hmm. very perfectionist and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was very hard for me to learn how to rest and to get to a place of peace when I have to rest. But I'm happy to report that I'm 100% there now. Um, So it's possible. Like, you know, that's the thing about behavior analysis too, is the science of behavior teaches us that like 
everything is a skill that is learnable. So like you see somebody who has these personality traits that you're like, oh, I wish I was more like that. You actually can be, um, you know, if those are in line with your values, if those personality traits are in line with your values and it's something that you want to learn, most behaviors are learnable. And so of course there's going to be like biological, you know, constraints and things like that, but just keep an open mind and try not to limit yourself when you see a certain behavior that you kind of are like, oh man, I wish I had a little bit of that because you absolutely can learn it. It takes a lot of practice and it is hard work, but most skills are learnable. I love that. And one of the things that I remember being so surprised by, a lot of people tend to think that our thoughts direct our behaviors, right? Like I think, therefore I am kind of thing, but like, okay, I think that I'm a person who values exercise and therefore I go and I exercise. Your behaviors can actually exert a bigger influence on your feelings about yourself mm-hmm. than your than your and then your thoughts and feelings can exert on your behavior. So we tend to think, oh, if I'm just motivated, if I'm just motivated. No, if you actually just do things, it'll change your feelings and your thoughts as opposed to changing your feelings and thoughts in order to change your behavior. Is that still, is that still applying? <laughs> You know, it just kind of depends on the the philosophy that you're subscribing to. So there's yeah, a okay. lot of different like schools of thought out there. Um, the school of thought in terms of a behavior analyst is that your thoughts are going to influence your behavior potentially. They may act as some sort of motivation, um, but they're not necessarily like controlling your behavior. Yeah. You know, you're controlling your behavior actually. <laughs> so, right. um, and the, the environment influences how you end up behaving. And so when your environment is not conducive, to all of these lifestyle changes that your rheumatologist has suggested, well, no wonder you're not doing them. That's not your fault. That is not your fault Mm -hmm. at all. That is the fault of the environment being set up in a certain way that is not going to help you at all in producing those behaviors. And so again, working with a behavior analyst who's trained in being able to kind of look at the environment, look at what's going on, and how can we make this work better for you? Oh, it makes so much sense. An environment is, um, in, in occupational therapy, we have one of our models is called the PEO, person, environment, and then occupation, mm-hmm. which is just our fancy word of saying meaningful activity or necessary task for your daily life. So an occupation could be sleeping, you know, it could be taking care of your child or whatnot. So, but the, uh, the environment is like this invisible, huge influence people tend to forget. Like I know some people say, um, even like laying out exercise clothes the night before, like some people wear it to bed to remind themselves or put their shoes on as they get out of bed for their exercise shoes to remind, you know, that kind of like, yep. um, I guess that's more of a technique than an environment, but you can modify things in your environment. Um, yeah. And it absolutely is. Yeah. It's modifying your environment to occasion a behavior. We would call that like a prompt in applied behavior analysis. Yeah. So it's something that evokes the behavior or makes it more likely to occur. Oh, and I just literally yesterday did this after seeing people on Instagram do this. I really liked the idea of making smoothies, but what my barrier that I identified to my behavior of making smoothies was I was irritated at having to get everything. Our freezer's over full, first of all, so that's environment, too much stuff in the freezer. And then it was like, I had to get things out and then things were falling and I was just throw it in the side and who cares? I don't want to make a smoothie anymore. So I I saw that somebody had taken the pre-measure the ingredients in their freezer and, and put them in little freezer bags, get the Ziploc out of the freezer, put it in the smoothie maker, and then you add whatever else, maybe like a protein powder or like a almond milk. And it was like, I've already made two smoothies, you know, yesterday, one and one today. And it was like, that's totally influenced my behavior. I didn't need to think differently about how much I wanted a smoothie. I wanted a smoothie the whole time, but I, my behavior wasn't 
following from that desire. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, no, that, that's such a great, that's such a smart kind of tool to use and to implement to make that behavior more likely. I go a step further and I actually may, I batch make all my smoothies and then I just freeze them and take them out the morning that I'm going to have them because I can't oh, with meal prep, like during the week, I'm just too busy with like work. And like, I just get so exhausted by the end of the day. There's just no way that I'm going to be getting out a blender and cleaning it after it's not happening. I've been getting some questions from people lately who are wanting to pursue advanced degrees and they are young people who have um, these kind of, you know, inflammatory conditions. And the question I get a lot is like, how do you balance being a student? <laughs> how do you make it look so easy, Kristen? No, I'm just kidding. Cause I know the answer. Not, you're, you're honest about it. It's not easy every day, right? No, yeah, it's definitely not. And actually I love this question so much. Anytime I can talk about graduate school and the huge puzzle piece of graduate school that is mental health. I will talk about it. I, I, I supervise master's students. And so it's a huge piece of my supervision is to always make sure that they have some sort of mental health goal that they're working on. Because I think way too often in graduate school, honestly, in life in general, we just kind of forget about that piece. And unless you're actively working on it, it's like use it or lose it. Right. And so like, you have to make sure that this kind of stuff stays fresh. So in terms of like balancing graduate school with chronic illness, it is a challenge. Absolutely. I think a huge component of my success or anyone's success who does graduate school with a chronic illness is going to be first off your advisor. So your advisor actually has a huge influence in your graduate school experience. If you have an advisor that fits well with your needs, you're going to have a much easier time than somebody whose advisor does not really fit well. So if you are thinking about, you know, going to a master's program or a PhD, you want to make sure that you talk to students of the advisor. So current students and people who are early in their journey and people who are later on in their journey, because someone like me who is in their final hour, we have a lot more to say mm -hmm. <laughs> because we've been around for a while and we've learned how to set boundaries and how to become kind of our own person while under the leadership of somebody else. And so I would say that that is going to be the key kind of thing to think about is who is your advisor going to be and, you know, does their supervision style and then also do their values align with yours? Is it really productivity based? And is it something where you're going to have to push yourself harder than you're able to? Because that's setting you up for failure. Again, you are not the problem in that equation. It's a bad fit. And so you need to make sure that you find the right fit. And so you absolutely can manage um, chronic illness with graduate school. You just need to make sure you're in the right place for you and your abilities. And then the other thing I would say is get really good at setting boundaries, know what your boundaries are and don't be afraid to set them because when speaking of behavior analysis, when you set up a behavioral pattern, right? So if you're constantly saying yes to things and overworking yourself, you're teaching other people in the environment that they can keep loading stuff on you. When you start putting your foot down and you say like, Hey, this isn't working for me. I need it to be this way. Instead, people will listen. Um, but you've got to set up those expectations and you have to set those boundaries. And that can be extremely challenging to set boundaries. I know it was something that was very hard for me when I first got diagnosed. So lean on your support systems and make sure you're celebrating your behaviors when you do set boundaries. So it might be something as small as saying no to a social event that you have, you know, you just don't have the energy for and you say no to it, go celebrate yourself for saying no to that because that was probably a lot harder than you're giving yourself credit for. And you need to make sure that you're reinforcing those behaviors.
That makes so much sense. I just, I literally just did that earlier last week. I said no to a volunteer opportunity that I really wanted to do, but I have to recognize limits. And I literally like texted a friend. I was like, I said no to something. I'm so proud of myself because the root of that behavior to me at times is multi-pronged. One of them is just my innate personality and a a pattern over time of feeling like I can do everything, say yes to everything. And also Mm -hmm. a a genuine desire to do everything. I just want you even if I didn't have to sleep, if I could take a pill and not sleep and there's 24 hours a day, I would still want more hours, you know? So I realizing that there, there has to be a limit, but also it comes from, I really realized this after my son was born and I had, I had a pretty bad flare up. And then I started feeling a little bit better when I switched medications. I was like, I have to seize the moment because I don't know when the next flare is going to come. And so I've got to lean in now. And I really realized I came close to burning out. I didn't burn out professionally, but I came too close for comfort because I was trying to squeeze in too much in the time period that I felt capable, but it was like too big of a volume of commitments and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have absolutely burned out several times in graduate (laughs) school, but I'm still here. And why is that? You know, because you learn these skills of persistence and I understand that persistence is a behavior and that I can cultivate that. And if this is still in line with my values and my goals and my dreams, and I need to continue to pursue it, I just have to pursue it in a different way. And so something Mm -hmm. that I've learned in the past couple years is to not commit to things that's more than 80% of what I know I can handle. So I, if Mm -hmm. I know that like, okay, I, I can handle, let's say I can handle these 10 things. I'm actually not going to commit to those 10 things. I'm only going to commit to eight things because I know if I commit to those 10 things and then I have a flare or there's something else that goes on in my personal life, or maybe something really fun comes up and I want to take part in it. I'm not going to be able to do that if I've already committed to my full load, right? It's kind of like that spoon theory. Like don't, don't use all the spoons, save a couple because you Mm -hmm. never know what's going to come up. That's a beautiful rule of thumb. And again, those of us who are used to committing to, you know, 110%, it's a big leap to learn a new behavior, but you can. I, I know that you have utilized so many different tools for your own kind of stress management. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on, you know, mindfulness or ACT or anything that you do for kind of overall stress management or anxiety or however you label it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think the biggest, um, the biggest catalyst, full disclosure, I went to therapy literally the day after I was diagnosed, I made an appointment with a therapist because I knew that, so I have mental illness in my family history as well. And so I know I'm predisposed. And then we know that people with chronic illnesses are actually more likely to experience mental health issues at some point. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to get out ahead of it. So even though I wasn't struggling yet, I was actually celebrating my diagnosis because it meant I was going to get treatment. Um, I knew that I wanted to get out ahead of it. And so I think that doing that actually saved me because I think I would have gone down a spiral and it was so much easier to get out ahead of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say, than like digging myself in a hole and then trying to dig my way out of it. And so I will say that like, there is absolutely no shame in going to therapy, even as somebody trained in psychology, I went and reached out to another professional because I was like, I can't do this by myself. And so I think that was a huge, huge turner for me. Um, By going to therapy, that's when I contacted 
started mindfulness practice. My therapist was a, was a proponent of it. She never pushed it on me at all, but that was something I wanted to do for myself. And so having that as a regular practice that I still engage in now every single day, that's made a huge difference in the way that I approach my diagnosis and the thoughts that I have surrounding my diagnosis. Because sometimes it's not necessarily what's actually happening that causes suffering. It's everything that's going on in here. And so when you learn that tool of mindfulness, and you're able to kind of generalize it and practice it when the thoughts are overwhelming, it's just so much easier than, again, like having to dig yourself out of this hole where like I have been overwhelmed for months and I haven't sought any help. And then you mentioned ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. So that's just a psychotherapeutic tool um, that or a model that some clinical psychologists may use. Um, it is very behavioral. Um, I, I definitely enjoy lots of tools from ACT. So ACT kind of functions on this idea that there are six kind of core areas that lead to what we call psychological flexibility or being able to kind of handle whatever gets thrown your way in life in a way that you are proud of. ACT is really neat because they use the patient's verbal behavior. So how is the patient speaking about their experience? And then the therapist will identify where on those six kind of core core areas, where do I need to focus my treatment? So it can be a super useful tool. Um, and it also incorporates mindfulness or the, the, what they call it is contact with the present moment. But yeah, mm -hmm. it can be a really, really useful technique. Well, and it was so fascinating to me because I learned it as a patient first. And then mm -hmm. when I started learning the history of it and doing continuing ed as a practitioner, because uh, occupational therapists can use it as a, as a model as well. And I think a lot of people with pain, it's a model that resonates from my experience a little more than CBT because there's this pressure taken off of you of trying to argue with the thoughts. You just are learn how to acknowledge or, and then distance yourself a little bit from them. That's one of the core areas of ACT is diffusion. And so the idea here is that we are so fused with our thoughts that we are so connected to them that we end up regarding them as true and as these kind of like permanent objects that are guiding mm -hmm. us. Whereas that's actually not true at all. Thoughts are just there and they're just noise in the background, like if you had the radio on. And mm -hmm. so through that practice of diffusion, you can learn to kind of just allow that, like recognize that these are just thoughts. They don't actually have any power over me. They don't even need to be true. And even if they are true, that actually is irrelevant. It's really more about, are these thoughts helpful for me in this moment? Because if they're not, then I don't need to give them any attention right now. That's yeah. And I think with people in pain, it can be so yeah. useful because you could be thinking this might not ever get better and spiraling on that thought. And that's true thought. It's true that it might not ever get better, but it also is true that it might get better. So learning to live with that uncertainty is, is huge. Um, but back to the mindfulness practice, can you walk us through a little bit more? Like what does your mindfulness practice kind of look like in, in your life? Yeah, so my mindfulness practice started off with using some meditation apps, just doing 10 minutes a day. That was kind of my goal in the beginning. And then once I started feeling comfortable with that, I started kind of busting out of the mold a little bit and doing my own thing and just focusing on like a breath practice. Mm -hmm. um, and once I kind of solidified that breath practice, you know, all this while I'm, I'm trying to use the tools of mindfulness outside of meditation, right? So meditation is the gym, mindfulness is the exercise. So so 
I'm using mindfulness. It's not, I did not come up with that. Oh, okay. I think I heard, <laughs> I think I heard Corey Mascara say it, but I think John Kabat-Zinn has said it as well. I love so that. It's, it's a really mm. good analogy. But yeah, so using mindfulness throughout my day. So actually, you know, not just in relation to my chronic illness, it was extremely helpful there, but also in relation to my PhD, it was extremely helpful mm-hmm. in relation to my PhD because I was so stressful and my thoughts were on my PhD all the time. And so mindfulness really helped me kind of just like drop the struggle and just allow these things to kind of be and pass as they will. I've been getting more into different types of mindfulness and different types of meditation. So looking at, you know, um, like chakra meditation, I'm not sure if you're interested in that at all or have any exposure to it, but I've heard of it. I would love to hear more. It's neat stuff. And I'm certainly not a teacher. I am very novice in this work myself. I do like kind of exploring like the different energy centers of the body and kind of seeing, again, I think it's a nice tool. It kind of is a way to kind of direct your energy and direct your thoughts and direct kind of what, what do I want to give attention today? And Mm -hmm. so if it's, you know, I need to infuse more love and practicing and behaving throughout my day with more love, then I can go ahead and focus on that chakra. And then that will give me, uh, um, you know, kind of that, that motivation to behave in a way that's, again, more in line with my values. That's kind of what it all comes back to. None of my therapists ever like explicitly talked about the values piece. I think claustrophobia, again, is like a perfect example, right? Because I value travel and I value mm-hmm. time with my family and exploring new places. And I have to get on an airplane to do that. I just have to. Like I, I literally could go on a container ship it's physically possible, but like, it's so extreme and would have so many negative like sides to it that it was like, you know, really hit me in the face. I have a choice, right? Sometimes in act, we talk about the choice point. I could say I'm not willing to tolerate the discomfort that I feel on an airplane and I'm not going to travel. Even though my value is mm-hmm. travel, I am going to choose not to because I'm not willing to. But I was like, I'm a little bit too stubborn. I was like, that doesn't resonate with me. I, I value it too highly. I have to learn how to do this. And so exposure therapy is not fun, um, but it was a wonderful at the end. It's like, it's like, it's like yeah. running a marathon. It's great after you finish and you can look back right. and say, I did that. So um, to see like, yeah, I can now live according to my values. And it's not like I feel this wonderful sense of perfect peace and harmony when I'm on the airplane, and I, but I've learned right. I can live with anxiety. It has translated so much to my thoughts around my condition, particularly with uncertainty. Again, right. is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? Um, I think it's really common for people with um, inflammatory arthritis and any autoimmune disease to struggle with that uncertainty and to kind of try to chase certainty is a lot of energy that ultimately is not going to result in your goal of certainty because certainty is impossible. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, and it goes so much further even than just chasing certainty. But I find that a lot of times we end up chasing things like happiness, right? I know we Mm. both have read The Happiness Trap, (laughs) Um, but we tend to do that. Yeah. And we chase all of these things that, you know, we have kind of deemed as good and desirable. And I will have a good life when I achieve these things. And it's really not about that. It's about, um, I'm going to have a good life in spite of whatever comes my way, right? And I'm gonna learn Mm -hmm. to find joy and I'm gonna learn to find peace and, 
you know, committed action despite what is happening around me. So I think that is where, you know, those values and, you know, even acceptance can be a really, really powerful tool in chronic illness management, because again, we spend a lot of time fighting our diagnosis. And I know that sometimes we have to right? like that, that um, idea of I'm going to fight back against RA that can be really, really helpful sometimes, but there are also other times like you've got life is balance, right? It's all about balance. And so there are some times when you're going to just have to accept, like, you know what, I do have rheumatoid arthritis. And right now it's got to take center stage and that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. So how do I find happiness and joy and peace, despite the fact that my RA right now is more active and is needing more of my time. That so resonates. And I think for a lot of people, the difficulty with learning acceptance is that they associate it with giving up, you know, like not, yes. not even playing yes. the game, but you're still playing the game. You're playing the game of like life, right? You're just not playing exactly the game versus my condition. Yep. What's hard for me is that I feel so much passion for people who are recently diagnosed, but in some ways there's a paradox because it's like, on the one hand, it's like, I learned all these helpful tools after like living with this for like 13, 14 years when I finally went to therapy. I want to teach everyone right away so they don't have to struggle like I did. And on the other hand, are you completely ready to learn all of these tools immediately after your diagnosis? I'm not sure everyone is ready and that's okay too. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful point is you're, you're right. You're, so you're only going to find this as effective when you're ready and you're in a good spot to kind of go ahead and practice that acceptance. But you know, it's okay when you're not, it's okay that you're not necessarily ready, right? Like it's okay that there's going to be a little bit of, you know, I've got to fight this for a while. So I just, you know, have grace. Um, don't be too hard on yourself because even myself, I mean, I'm still pretty new to my diagnosis, but I definitely have moments where I, I'm absolutely not in a place of acceptance. So, you know, these, these things are all journeys that we're on. They're all kind of roller coasters. They ebb and flow, they have ups and downs. And so I think it, the, the biggest piece is, can I still live a life that it, that I find fulfillment in despite those ups and downs, because ups and downs mm-hmm. are part of life, chronic illness or not. And, you know, it's really more about like accepting that and kind of being at a place where can I live my life and be fulfilled with it, even though I'm going to have those ups and downs. That's so beautiful. Yeah. The other metaphor that I resonated with in the Russ Harris's work is your thoughts are the passengers on the bus. And so you're driving and sometimes your thoughts are going to be saying things like you're stupid. You shouldn't do that. Pull over. Oh my gosh, danger, dangers ahead. And, or they can say, you're amazing. You're awesome. Go faster, you know, go chase that next shiny object, but you are in control. You're the driver and you know where you're going. So you have to learn how to just tolerate those thoughts or like be able to acknowledge them and say, Oh, those are thoughts that I'm still going. Like if my, where I'm driving to is like a full life, despite chronic pain, I can listen to, but I can't um, follow those thoughts that say, pull off the road, stop, don't even drive anymore. So I think um, some people after hearing you, how eloquent you are, maybe checking out your Instagram, they might be like, Ooh, I want to get some help. I want to get some chronic illness behavior coaching, either from you or from someone else. Can you talk a little bit like, what does it look like or to work with a behavior analyst on chronic illness behavior coaching? 
So the way that it works um, for me, at least right now, is it is remote. Um, so, you know, given the pandemic and all that kind of good stuff, we're just kind of doing things virtual right now. It first starts out with just kind of like a consult call and kind of seeing if we are a good fit for each other, right? You have to make sure that I'm a good fit for you. And that doesn't hurt my feelings if I'm not. It just means that we're not suited to fit together, right? Um, and to work together. And that's okay. So, we, you know, we first kind of do this little consult call and then after that, if we decide we want to move forward, then we do kind of an assessment. And so the assessment call is basically just me asking some questions about your lifestyle um, and, you know, what your goals are and what has worked for you in the past, what hasn't worked. And then we kind of discuss together about some potential solutions. So what does behavioral science say about the goals that you want to reach and how can we reach them? And so I will kind of field some options off of my client and they will tell me what works for them, what doesn't. And then I will create a plan and the plan will be kind of a detailed explanation of, you know, how they're going to reach their goals. And so it'll have specific steps that they can engage in in order to reach those goals. I will definitely ask people to take data. Data is a really big component of what we do in behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. And so I have to let that data guide my decision making. Otherwise it's not really behavior analysis. Yeah. So <laughs> I would, create a data sheet for my clients and they would take data and then we would check in. It just kind of depends on like what we're working on and how intense it is. And we might meet once a week. I might do some text prompts in between. It just kind of depends on the client and what mm -hmm. fits them and their lifestyle. So I can be very adaptable depending on what works for them. And then we kind of just go from there. And so it might be that you have kind of this like this concrete thing that you want to work on and you just need like a plan to help you get there. So we can do that. Or it might be something more mm -hmm. ongoing. So it might be more about like, you know, working around my thoughts on high pain days. Maybe I have a really hard time managing those thoughts. Okay. Well that might require a little bit more of an ongoing process, but the idea in behavior analysis is always that we we are getting to a place where you are not having to work with us regularly. So mm -hmm. the goal is to get, put the tools in your tool belt. Um, it doesn't do me any good to keep all the tools myself. So the point is right. that I give you the tools and then you walk away with them. And then I support you so that you can continue to use those tools in a way that works for you. And further, if we can even get you using those tools for other behaviors, that's even better. So then now you really are empowered to kind of do this stuff yourself and you're not necessarily necessarily needing to rely on a behavior analyst to get you there. Almost like a jump starting, you yeah. know, and helping. I mean, it really makes so much sense to sort through again, that overwhelm. And I know that at one point, you know, when I was working at accepting uncertainty, I was telling my therapist, if it can feel like a fool's errand to try to like correlate everything. But at the same yeah. time, I think it's just this interesting balance between on the one hand, accepting, accepting that this is happening right now in the right. present moment versus gathering data to help us promote our health in the long term. You know, it's like kind yes. of a balancing act. <laughs> it's a total balancing act. And like, like I said, that's why I'm such a big proponent of like looking at this as a marathon, not a sprint, because like you really do need to make sure that you're resting along the way and taking breaks sometimes if you're, if the symptoms can, you know, wait. So mm -hmm. I, I know when I was in the process of getting costochondritis diagnosed, it was exhausting. And 
I was like, like knee deep in my dissertation, I was like, I can't do this. Like I need to take a break from chasing a diagnosis. And so I literally just walked away for about a month and just said, I can't do this um, and just waited. And then eventually when I was ready, you pick back up and you go ahead. Um, so like you said, it's kind of like, like asking yourself that question, like, is this working for me now? Because things are going to shift. Right. And so like chasing the diagnosis is working for me right now, but right now it's not, and I need to stop. And then at some point, right. Stopping is no longer working for me and I need to pick Mm -hmm. that back up Mm -hmm. and chase again. Such a great point. And I'm anticipating a question some people might have, and I will definitely be putting some, some resources in the show notes for learning more about BCBAs and about ACT and about ABA um, and chronic illness behavior coaching. But what, how would you differentiate chronic illness behavior coaching from either quote general life coaching or health coaching, or is there an overlap there? I know we talked about this, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's definitely a little bit of an overlap for sure. So I actually, I, it was very exciting. Actually, I got to talk to a board certified behavior analyst who's also a certified health coach a couple weeks ago. And that was super fun. Um, She works for a large company and she does kind of like stress management for the larger company. And so she, um, I think, you know, with the behavior analysis, one, it's always like the data, right? And so we have Mm -hmm. lots of data driving us. And so we're kind of collecting data all the time. And so that's one of the big tools that we use. Um, Another big tool is just all the training that we have in behavioral science. Whereas with health coaching, for example, um, it's going to vary depending on where you do your coursework. um, But they're going to be more on this kind of like holistic level of like learning about like mindfulness and um, motivational interviewing and things like that. And so there's definitely some overlap for sure. But I think that both has their um, unique kind of areas of of expertise. And life coaching is similar to health coaching for what I know in the sense that you can either have a certification and go through a program or because it's not like a nationally regulated profession, anyone can call themselves like right. a life coach or a health coach. Whereas if you know that somebody has a BCBA, that's like a master's level and like that is more rigorous than not. Yeah. So um, yeah. again, doesn't mean that you can't find someone that works for you. Right. Certainly I'm a huge fan of workability, right? I think, you know, as a master's level trained occupational therapist, there are some ways in which I'm overtrained sometimes. So I'm the first to admit that, but I think there is a clout that is important in a, in a field that is regulated. And unfortunately I've seen people out there and I got gotten targeted yep. by people who are like, yep. I can make, I can cure your RA, join yep. my health coaching program. I'm like, Nope. This is actually why I started offering behavioral services because I was being targeted by people that I was like, what exactly qualifies us to be providing these services? Um, And so I said, you know what? All right. Um, We need to spread the word (laughs) and let people know that like, you know, if you're going to be working with someone again, like you do you, I'm all about people doing what works for them. Um, But I think when you are thinking about like, how can coaching like fit into my life, lifestyle coaching, all these different kinds, I just strongly encourage people to interview different coaches. So like you may talk to me and that's great. um, But I also want you to talk to other coaches. And so maybe you go talk to a certified health coach, or maybe you talk to someone who's not certified. And for you, that works. It's like, you know what you do you, it's your money at the end of the day, it's your life. You need to find somebody who fits for you. And if you do find that good fit, honestly, you're going to get more results out of that, regardless of the technique that they're taking. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't buy into the services, you're never going to get anywhere. That's beautifully said. Well, this is so fun talking. I know we could talk for hours, but um, (laughs) do you have anything else that you wanted to say about either you know, behavior analysis, um, chronic illness, behavior coaching, or your own journey 
that before we kind of start wrapping up? Yeah, I think it's just about, you know, I think like final thoughts, final, final words is, you know, you don't have to do it alone. You really, really don't. And so that support can come in a lot of different forms. And so if you find that your support is, you know, the people, the immediate circle in your life, and that's working for you, then there's no need to fix it. It's working for you. But if you find that like, man, I, I really feel like I would be in a better place if I could do this, that, whatever, you can do those things. And so just kind of getting creative and figuring out like, how, how do I achieve those goals? So maybe it's joining a support group, maybe it's getting active with other patients, or maybe it is pursuing something like a coaching kind of situation. Cause at the end of the day, your rheumatologist, I mean, they see you for like the total, maybe an hour a year and changing behavior is really hard. And so to yes. put it on the patient, just like, well, here's this list of things, go make it happen. That's, I'm not blaming anyone here, but I do think that we need to support behavior change in a more realistic level based on what our science tells us. We know that that's not a very effective way to change behavior. And mm -hmm. so, you know, again, there's no shame in like reaching out and asking for that extra support, that extra help. If you're feeling like I could be in a different level with my chronic illness and I'm not where I want to be. And why is that? That makes so much sense. And I think that um, insurance companies are slowly coming to yeah. realize that for chronic conditions, because frankly, they're concerned with their bottom line and it saves them money. Yeah. And people can change their behavior. I think it's a little bit of a human bias to want to think that if we just had access to the right information, we would automatically change our behavior. And that's not true, right? How many of us know that you should stay calm and rational during an argument. You doesn't, that knowledge doesn't make you able to do it. And I know that in my program and the beginner's guide to life with rheumatoid arthritis, there are nuggets of information that I've put in there that I know that the patients weren't taught before. And I'm, I'm proud of being able to tell them that, but I also think that's like the first step, right? You have to then take that knowledge and translate it into daily practice and, and behavior change to have the life that, that you want for a lot of people. So yeah, I love that you don't have to do it alone. I was going to ask your message to newly diagnosed patients? You know, addressing mental health early. I think that is also yes. a really big um, tool or key to my success is that, you know, getting out in front of it and just working on all of those things before you are having to dig yourself out of a hole. I, you're just resonating with me because I waited so <laughs> long and it wasn't like I had any negative thoughts about therapy. I right. just thought, and I've heard other people, so many people say it ever since. I just thought it wasn't bad enough. I was postpartum when I finally had the actual realization like this yeah. is bad enough. But at first I was yeah. like, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm not having har self-harmful thoughts. I'm not having thoughts about my life isn't worth living. I'm not, it's not that bad. It's just like, I, right. I feel constantly like on edge and irritable and anxious. And like actually had a, um, a, this wonderful woman who she actually worked for the arthritis foundation at the time. And I hadn't seen her in a while. My son was like 11 months old. And I think she was trying to have a baby and she was like, how's it going? Like, tell me like, you know, what do you, you know, and she said, um, how has your life changed? You know, cause I hadn't seen her in a year. And I literally remember the first thought to my, in my head was so quick and so strong. It was like, everything is worse about my life. Everything is worse, except yeah. for the fact that I feel that I'm happy that I am a mom. Like I'm happy that this mm -hmm. happened like on a logical level, but like, and that's not a kind of thought that I had ever had before. Like my, right. even when I was at the worst my diagnosis, I never thought everything about my life is worse. Right. And so it was like, oh, this is not me. And I actually got a little yeah. tearful. And then of course I go on this like aggressive pep talk to her of like, wow, it's been really, really hard to me, but I'm sure it's going to be great for you. You're going to be great. You're going to love it. You're going to be one of those moms who's just like, this is the best thing ever. But I was like, in my heart, I was like, 
everything yeah. about me is worse. I have less yeah. patience. I'm more sick. I feel dumber because I can't think clearly. Yeah. And so, and again, it's not that that wasn't maybe objectively true, but I needed right, support, right. you know, mm-hmm. and I could have gotten that support mm-hmm. so much earlier. So yes. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And therapy doesn't even have to be a one-time thing. It can be something where you go and you're like, okay, I'm doing pretty good. We titrate off. And then like, I notice myself slipping a little bit. I'm not full blown thinking my life is worse, but I'm also not where I was two months ago. So I'm going to go back and we're going to do a little refresher and then we're going to be on our way. Um, so I think that that's another thing, like, don't be afraid to go back to therapy too. Um, Mm -hmm. and don't wait for it to be out of control before you go back. Like your therapist loves to see your face, um, and know that you're doing okay. Um, but you just need a little extra boost. It is the one thing I, if I could change anything in my life, I would, I would have gotten mental health support earlier. That's a wonderful note to end on. I think I'm just so grateful for you for taking the time to share your perspective. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because, um, you know, I, I love the fact that you asked about like the ABA question, just because that is one of the things that I really enjoy doing is getting the word out there that ABA isn't necessarily what you thought it was. No. <laughs> Yay. Well, I'm so happy again that you're here and I hope that people take the time to look at the show notes to get some more information and to figure out how you can connect more with Kristen. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to check out my latest courses and resources on myarthritislife.net. This podcast is brought to you by the Beginner's Guide to Life with Rheumatoid Arthritis, a four-week online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people with inflammatory arthritis learn everything they need to know to navigate the social, emotional, physical, and logistical challenges of rheumatoid arthritis and related diseases. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.